0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And as with every week, I'm delighted to have you join with me. And I hope today, particularly helpful as what I want to do, perhaps even starting a new little short series here, is connect some biblical theology that we've covered in the last year to testimony that was offered last week in the Tennessee House of Representatives supportive of transgender ideology. I have a lot of folks, Christian and non-Christian alike, who say to me they don't understand transgenderism, this transgender ideology that just defies common sense, that if you just look at our bodies, how can you ever think that a male could be a female or vice versa or be non-binary? But I'm going to tell you right now that it makes perfect sense apart from the two fundamental doctrines on which the whole of Christianity rests. I'll get to those two doctrines in a minute, but I want to discuss first the importance of laying this doctrinal groundwork for understanding this testimony and what's going on in this transgender movement and in the law. You know, we often today don't like to focus on doctrine or dogmatics. It's said that doctrine divides. But that's actually its purpose, is to divide the truth from error. We have to know, according to the Scripture, how to rightly divide the word of truth. So that means we have to establish what is true, what we call our doctrines, our dogmatics, so that we can distinguish between the truth and falsehood. And when we understand the doctrines that I'm going to cover today and probably next week, It will serve a couple of very important purposes. The first of which is that it will affirm to you the rationality of the narrative found in Scripture. Or, putting it the other way around, it helps us understand why it is that even so many non Christians think transgenderism is irrational or illogical, it's contrary to common sense. And they don't know it, but by their bewilderment, They are actually affirming the truth of the biblical narrative, which is the gospel from beginning to end. And that leads to the second reason laying this doctrinal groundwork is so important. It helps us to understand how we can speak to this issue, and perhaps by extension, a number of other issues confronting us, in terms of the gospel, and not just pragmatically. I have found that most who speak to this issue today, in connection with transgenderism and legislation on the topic, do not speak in biblical categories, as I discussed last week. But they approach the matter pragmatically. What can be said or done that will get the legislation passed and, uh, if they're really forward-thinking, might allow us to uphold it in federal court? Now, maybe I can come back to this later point in a future episode, but I believe there's a very legalistic, non-gospel of grace spirit behind this pragmatic approach. It's, It's what I guess I would call the just stop the evil approach rather than how can we restore the good that has led to the evil approach. And it's the restoration of the good that's actually at the heart of the gospel to reconcile all things back to Christ from whom all of creation flows. And it's for the sake of the gospel that we find, I think, a a third reason for laying this doctrinal foundation. The last few mornings, I've been reading and praying through the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians again. I've been thinking a lot about those first three chapters in 1 Corinthians and the first four chapters in 2 Corinthians of the last couple of years. But as I was praying through and reading them again the last few days, it dawned on me in a fresher and, and deeper way that if we cannot approach engagement in law and policy in a gospel driven, a gospel informed way that allows us to find a fundamental enjoyment in God in that engagement rather than frustration and discouragement and despair and anger, then we may have been going about our engagement wrong. Now today, I'm not going to go into why I believe that's so. But for you who are earnest in knowing more about that possibility, let me suggest that you consider the scope of the words, all things that we find in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 through 23, and in 1 Timothy 6.17, I'll repeat those verses, 1 Corinthians 3.21-23, through 23, and 1 Timothy 6.17. So, with all that as an introduction for today, and most likely going into next week, perhaps the next two weeks, let me get to the persons who spoke in favor of transgenderism. Now, in these speakers, in the audio clips you're going to hear, one of them you will see identified herself as a Christian minister. And what you're going to see is the practical consequence of denying the two fundamental doctrines on which Christianity rests. And now I'm going to name them, the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, and they're important in that order or perhaps speaking more charitably of these witnesses, particularly the one who professed to be a Christian, you will see the practical consequences of not understanding these doctrines or their application to life and to law. So I'm going to play these audio clips, but I'm not going to comment on them really today. I'm going to reserve comment and elaboration until next week. Because if we have a firm grasp on key aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity. And we're not going to cover all that it implies and means today or tomorrow. And if we can get a grasp of the doctrine of creation, ex nihilo, and again, we're not going to get through all of what it entails and means. I believe it'll make the statements of these witnesses that you're about to hear come alive with a really fundamental meaning. And you will understand why these statements make perfect sense. Both of them. So I hope you'll come back next week and we'll see how all this plays out as we then put what you're about to hear in the context of these two doctrines. So here's the first clip of the person speaking, and uh, this is the person who identifies as a minister.
0: And I am here in the name of the God of expansive and inclusive love, Jesus Christ, and I oppose. House Bill 239 defining sex as a person's immutable biological sex determined at birth. I have seen the hurt and fear this kind of erasure causes in the Christian church and it saddens me to imagine that hurt writ large across the state were it written into law. We each of us hold identities that change over time, none of us are immutable. And I know from walking with God's children in the church that when we say we must be immutable, it creates a sense that our true and vulnerable selves and all of our changes cannot be valued or held with dignity or worthy of love. I've seen this harmful interpretation drive folks out of the place where they are supposed to come and know they inherently belong in all of who they are and in all of the ways that they are becoming.
1: Now, the second clip is of a lawyer from the ACLU. The lawyer is a biological woman who's undergone various medical procedures and presents as a male. That's a shorter clip, but listen to it and see if you can find a connection between the lawyer's statement and that of the woman minister. It's a sh- short clip, so listen carefully for the phrase that connects these two witnesses' statements.
0: hear a lot about parents' rights. What about the rights of parents who are trying to help their suffering children? And even if we disagree about ultimately the efficacy or the safety of this care, or whether it's good or bad to be transgender, I happen to think it's a normal variation of human existence. But even if we disagree about that, these are parents whose kids are hurting.
1: Okay. Now, let's lay down some of this biblical theology about the Trinity and the doctrine of creation that will help us understand Where both this minister and the lawyer are coming from, and why, from their perspective, what they say makes perfect sense to them. And with respect to the minister, over the rest of today, and perhaps certainly for next week, we'll begin to understand how erosion within evangelicalism on these two fundamental doctrines made possible not only the minister's view, uh, this view expressed by a believer in Jesus but that of the ACLU lawyer, and we'll begin to understand how they're reconciled to each other and why we're the ones who are not reconciled to them and need to be enlightened. And I'm going to say something else here before I get to talking specifically about today the doctrine of the Trinity, that it's my experience that this erosion is pretty pervasive throughout evangelicalism. not true, certainly, of every church. But it is consistent, what I'm getting ready to say, with my own experience growing up in conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical churches, and it is this. These doctrines took on less importance because we had a one-sided focus on the subjective side of theology. Namely, soteriology, getting saved. Remember last week, I spoke to this using Machen's book, What is Faith?, and his criticism of the church's one-sided emphasis on a vital religion. And I used Kuyper's remarks to the seminary students at Princeton in 1898 about objective and subjective religion. And and of course Kuiper was writing in eighteen ninety eight, mentioned in nineteen twenty five, I believe it was. So if that was true then, it is as much true, if not more so now that we focus strictly on the subjective or vital side of Christianity. What does it mean to me rather than its objective side, which becomes doctrinal and creedal? It's also my experience after Literally, growing up in evangelical churches, that that there's not much emphasis or exhortation to study or think very deeply. I think I mentioned it when I was using some of Nancy Piercy's material from her book, Total Truth. There's There has been, over the last hundred years, a, a relative anti-intellectualism to evangelicalism. And I think that's particularly true with respect to the doctrines of the Trinity and creation ex nihilo. But as I was listening, actually today, on the way into the office to some comments by Jason Farley on one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Chop Knocks Unplugged, I, it, it was driven home to me that the Bible is really telling us a story. It is a narrative. That's why I used the word, the narrative, at the beginning of the po- podcast. And really, everything we needed to know about living in the cosmos in which we've been placed is found in the first three chapters of Genesis. And as Sinclair Ferguson has said, the rest of the Bible is strictly narrative, expounding on those fundamentals. God, creation, fall, and redemption. And another thing that I want to add here, and I'm sorry I keep adding to stuff before I get to this doctrine of the Trinity. But but in terms of these deficiencies, what I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed it too, is that in much of the biblical worldview teaching and training that I've gotten, and sadly that in the past I've provided, is that it begins with creation and speaks in terms of creation, fall, that, whatever, that which explains what our problems are and why we have these problems, and redemption. But we have to remember that back behind creation is God. And without the doctrine of the Trinity, we will not understand rightly the doctrine of the creation. We've got to start with who God is. And so often we just sort of skip over the who God is straight to the point of creation. But we won't understand creation if we don't understand God. And then we won't really understand the transgender movement. So we can continue to think very superficially, not very deeply about things. And we can just call those in the transgender movement stupid. We can say they lack common sense. We can call the minister a heretic. And I believe she she actually is. But re- in reality, they're both only moving toward the logical consequences of their cosmological perspective, and in the case of the minister, her beliefs about the nature of God. Now, why did I say their cosmological perspective, rather than their views about God? And, and that's because I don't know what the views of this transgendered lawyer are about God. It is indeed possible that he believes there is a God, and we'll talk about that in relation to the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. So I really can't speak to his belief about God exactly. But I can say, and I have said, using Dr. Andrew Sandlin's wonderful little book, Creational Worldview, that one's cosmology does determine one's soteriology and eschatology. So cosmology as between soteriology, the issue of salvation, and eschatology in things is primary, and our cosmologically, logically determines our view of the other two. But as I just said, behind our cosmology is our understanding of God, who God is, and what that then means for our cosmology or doctrine of creation. One of the things that I've noticed and I've been reflecting on for the last couple of years is that in Paul's prayers in Ephesians and Colossians for the churches there, he speaks fundamentally about coming to the knowledge of God and growing in the knowledge of God. And In fact, in Colossians, there's a connection between bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And to be honest... We spend so little time teaching about a doctrine of God and thinking it through that I believe that failure, that weakness, explains why so much of the work done by Christians, particularly in law and public policy, has been so unfruitful over the last hundred years. I I believe it's a failure to develop a sound doctrine of God. It explains why Kuiper said, back in 1898, that apologetics directed to proving God's existence hasn't advanced Christianity one bit. And this unfruitfulness, I believe, and I know I can speak to it in my own life, is related to the fact that God has said he will not allow any abstract conception of God or some imagined understanding of God, some generic understanding of God, to steal his glory as the triune God. See, that's what I'm referring to when I say the Bible is is a narrative. It begins with God, and by the end we understand that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that He is triune, that He has personality as Father, as Son, and as Spirit. See, And as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I think it was the Building Blocks series last year, the doctrine of the Trinity began to fade from its position of prominence with Frederick Schleiermacher, who in 1799 published a book called Addresses on Religion, and this is what he wrote. Religion is the outcome neither of the fear of death nor of the fear of God. It answers a deep need in man. Now see right there, we see subjectivity. It's about man. It's responding to a need that men have. It's not men responding to God, to who God is. Steinmeier continues, It is neither a metaphysic nor a morality, but above all and essentially an intuition and a feeling. Now, What is he saying in that last part? Metaphysics is the concept of what is beyond matter. We can all see the brick wall in front of us. But what is the value, the meaning, the purpose of the brick wall? Is it to keep prisoners in? Is it to uh, um, shelter children from the elements? You know, uh, maybe that's a bad example. But but metaphysics has to do with that which is beyond the physical sensations to m- issues of value and meaning and purpose or our telos, our end, where we're headed, Okay. And he says, no, it's it's really not about all of that. It's essentially an intuition and a feeling. And if you'll remember when I spoke last week about Machen, he said, if, if you have a wrong conception of the atonement, you've emptied Christianity of its moral component. Well, that's exactly what Schleimacher did. And for him, because this feeling of dependence on God was what was central to Christianity, you don't need a dogma about the triune nature of God. You don't need that to have a feeling or intuition about God and the sense of dependence on him. He didn't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Now, that was sort of recovered, obviously, in in the last century, you could say, with the Zusa Street Revival and some of those things, because our our Christianity had become either dead orthodoxy or meaningless and had no vitality to it. But But for centuries... Both the Catholic, the Eastern Orthodox, and the Reformed churches, the Protestant churches, have ascribed to the Athanasian Creed. And it begins with these words. Listen to them. They'll probably shock you. Whoever will be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the Catholic view of faith. The Catholic there is referring to the universal view of the church, not... Catholicism as a, uh, I guess you'd say, denomination, okay? He said, they must hold to, it is necessary for you to be saved, to hold to the Catholic view of the faith. And it continues, and the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Now today, that would sound outrageous even to many evangelicals. You mean you can't be saved if you don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. But I believe that reaction is only because too often the content of our faith, what Machen was trying to address, has become empty. Just believe this person named Jesus died for your sins and you're good to go. Well, I mean, there are other people who've died, right? They've come back to life. Uh, We have stories you know in bookshelves about those people but did they save anybody was there was there death and uh, resurrection uh, of any salvific importance to anybody absolutely not so you may be good to go in the in in the sense of being ready to grow in your knowledge of god but you're not good to go as in well you know that's done i got my baptismal card and i'm going to have it I mean, that's really just what the Apostle Paul says of the Hebrews who had the law and the sacrifices. They thought they were good to go too. God destroyed their form and manner of worship, and it's never returned. But let let me proceed and get back to this doctrine of the Trinity and its primacy. It may be more accurate to say, not that belief in the doctrine of the Trinity is necessary to salvation. But the doctrine of the Trinity is behind and makes salvation possible. Without it, it's like what Paul said about if there's no resurrection of the dead. If there's not, you're still in your sins. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If, if God is not triune, then you're still in your sins, and go eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. Now, one may not understand the doctrine of the Trinity at the time one comes to faith, but if progress is to be made in the Christian life, then learning about the doctrine of the Trinity and coming to love the triune nature of God is essential in growth and sanctification and holiness and longing to be in the presence of Christ. And I've seen that In my own life. Now, in regard to this doctrine of the Trinity, let me read you an excerpt from an excellent little book by Michael Reeves. It's very readable, it's short. It's called Delighting in the Trinity An Introduction to the Christian Faith. And this is where we'll end for this week. But I hope you will find this very helpful. Reeves poses these questions What would we say? is the article of faith that must be held before all others. Salvation by grace alone? Christ's atoning work on the cross? His bodily resurrection? Now, certainly, those are all things of first importance. He cites 1 Corinthians 15.3. So absolutely critical that they cannot be given up without the very nature and goodness of the gospel being lost. However, they do not stand before all things, as was said in the Athanasian Creed, by themselves, They are not what make the Christian gospel Christian. Jehovah's Witnesses can believe in the sacrificial death of Christ. Mormons in his resurrection. Others can believe in salvation by grace. Granted, the similarities are sometimes only superficial, but the very fact that certain Christian beliefs can be shared by other belief systems shows they cannot be the foundation on which the Christian gospel rests, the truth that stands before all things. For what makes Christianity absolutely distinct, is the identity of our God, which God we worship. That is the article of faith that stands before all others. Every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the triune God. I could believe in the death of a man called Jesus. I could believe in his bodily resurrection. I could even believe in his salvation by grace alone. But if I do not believe in this God, then quite simply, I'm not a Christian. And so, because the Christian God is triune, the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief, the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking let me read those last little lines again the trinity is the governing center of all christian belief the truth that shapes and beautifies all others the trinity is the cockpit of all christian thinking and that naturally leads into then its importance in relation to the doctrine of creation and that's what we're going to pick up with next week as we then begin to apply these two doctrines to the witnesses' testimonies that you heard earlier in today's podcast. And I hope you'll join me for next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook,
1: Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.